You're listening to Campus Review Radio. And just before we went to air today, we gave out an award for the Higher Education Journalist of the Year. It was won by Kyla Second of the Australian. Please congratulate Post-truth, alternative facts. These are words that just 12 months ago would have been meaningless. But now we live in an age where emotion trumps reason. (laughs) Are the facts fluid and how do experts fight back? To present the evidence for expertise today, we're joined by the Chair of University of Australia, Professor Barney Glover. Will you please make him welcome? Thank you, Chris. It's wonderful to be here. Just a short drive from here in the spectacular bushland around our nation's capital stands a collided rock shelter known as Biraka. This ancient site, a Tidbin Villa and precious ochre artworks in the nearby Namaji National Park, reminds us that this land has been home to the first people of this region for tens of thousands of years. They connect every Australian who visits them to the vast span of our country's history as do the names themselves. In the language of the Ngunnawal people, the word Jedbinbilla means a place where boys were made men. Biragai translates as laughter or to laugh. The traditional owners of this region, the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri peoples, and the clans from further afield who came here to trade and to marry and to take part in ceremonies, the Garagu, the Wulgaloo, the Gundungara, the Ewan, the Wiradjuri, have cared for this country, have curated this country, and loved this country for millennia. I acknowledge this as I pay my respects to you and to your elders, past and present. We live in challenging times. Ours is an era in which evidence, intellectual inquiry, and expertise are under sustained attack. The phrases post-truth and alternative facts have slipped into common use. Agendas have displaced analysis in much of our public debate, and we are all the poorer for it. So today I want to deliver a passionate defence of the value of expertise and evidence. I will mount a case for facts as they are grounded in evidence, not as fluid points of convenience employed to cover or distort a proposition. My plea to you all is this. Let's not deride experts, nor the value of expertise. Because in an era where extremists and polemicists seek to claim more and more of the public square, our need for unbiased, well-researched information has seldom been greater. We must remind ourselves of how human progress has ever been forged. In this, academics and journalists have common cause. For how are we to fill our respective roles in a democracy if we don't defend the indispensable role of evidence in decision making. In Australia and around the world we've seen the emergence of a creeping cynicism, even outright hostility towards evidence and expertise. We saw this sentiment in the post-Brexit declaration by British Conservative MP Michael Gove that, and I quote, the people of this country have had enough of experts. And yet as we strive to cure cancer, save lives from preventable disease, navigate disruption, 
lift living standards, overcome prejudice, and prevent catastrophic climate change, expertise has never been more important. The turn that public debate has taken is a challenge to universities. As institutions for the public good, we exist to push the frontiers of knowledge. We enhance human understanding through methodical, collaborative, sustained and robust inquiry. That doesn't discount the wisdom of the layperson. And it doesn't mean universities have all the answers, far from it. But we are unequivocally the best places to posit the questions. We're places structurally, intellectually, ethically and intrinsically premised on confronting society's most complex and confounding problems. We're at the vanguard of specialist knowledge. And we are relentless in its pursuit. We have to be. Because like the challenges we as institutions immerse ourselves in, the pace of change is unrelenting. In universities, questioning is continuous and answers are always, almost always, provisional. The intensive specialization, in-depth inquiry and measured analysis universities undertake is not carried out in service of some ulterior motive or finite agenda. In the conduct of research, the finish line is very rarely, if ever, reached. There's always more to learn, more to discover. The core objectives universities pursue can never be about any other agenda than the truth. There is no other, nor greater reward. So let's not disparage expertise or the critically important role of evidence and intellectual inquiry. Instead, let's try to understand its value to our country and its people, and indeed, to the world. Universities perform an essential role in society. We must stand up for the evidence, stand up for the facts, stand up for the truth. Because if we don't, who will? While I'm at the ramparts, I want to turn to another crucial role universities carry out in this era of alienation. It's a role that goes to the heart of economic opportunity and social cohesion. Disruption is drastically refashioning the economy. It's reshaping the way we work and reimagining the way we engage with each other in our local communities and indeed globally. In this constantly transforming environment, where major structural shifts in the economy can profoundly dislocate large segments of society, our universities perform a pivotal role. <coughs> universities help us make the very best of disruption, ensuring we're able to ride the wave. And they are the institutions best equipped to buffer us against the fallout. This is particularly important in regions that have relied for decades on large-scale blue-collar industries. Think Geelong in regional Victoria, Mackay in central Queensland. Look to Elizabeth in the northern suburbs of Adelaide, Wollongong and Newcastle in New South Wales, and Launceston in Tasmania and many more. One-time manufacturing strongholds in car-making, steel, timber, sugar, and others. These communities have been wrenched economically, socially, and at the personal level by automation, offshoring, and rationalisation. For places like these, universities can be a lifeline. Internationally, the evidence is in. <coughs> Former financier Antoine van Akmal and journalist Fred Barker look at this very scenario in their recent book, The Smartest Places on Earth. They uncover a transformative pattern in more than 45 formerly struggling regional US and European economies, places they describe as rust belts, 
turned brain belts. Akron, Ohio is one of the most remarkable examples they cite. This Midwestern city had four tyre companies disappear practically overnight. The then president of the University of Akron, Luis Prenza, reached out to those affected, rallying them to collaborate and encouraging them to transform. <coughs> and Akmal, who will speak at the UA conference tomorrow, tells the story of what happened next. What stayed in Akron, he observes, was the world-class polymer research that has given us things like contact lenses that change colour if you have diabetes, tyres that can drive under all kinds of road conditions, and hundreds more inventions. Akron, he continues, now has 1,000 little polymer companies that have more people working for them than the four old tyre companies combined. This kind of transformation at Akron and beyond, Van Akmal remarks, is university-centric. Each of these rust belts becoming brain belts, he concludes, always have universities. In, place, in places like those he describes, and many others around the world, universities and their graduates are leading vital processes of renewal within economies experiencing upheaval. You may be surprised at the extent of this, that this is actually happening in Australia as we speak. Over the past decade, the startup economy has become part of Australia's strategy for economic diversification and growth. Yet what has not been widely understood is the extent to which universities and their graduates are responsible for that growth. Now for the first time, Universities Australia and the survey group Startup Muster have taken a, cl a closer look at the data. It's my great pleasure to launch that report today. Startup Smarts, Universities and the Startup Economy, confirms that universities and their graduates are the driving force in Australia's startup economy. It tells us that four in five startup founders in this country are university graduates, many of them from Australian universities, some from overseas. Many startups too have been nurtured into existence by a university incubator, accelerator, mentoring scheme, or entrepreneurship course. There are more than 100 of those programs dispersed widely across the country with many on regional <coughs> university campuses. They provide support, physical space, and direct access to the latest research. They help to grow Australian ideas, <coughs> great Australian ideas, into great Australian businesses. This report confirms just how important the constant evolution, renewal and refining of course offerings at universities actually is. We need to ensure that our programs equip our students and graduates for an uncertain future. By the time today's kindergarten students finish high school and are considering university study, startups will have created over half a million new jobs across the country. And this new sector of the economy, a sector indivisible from our universities, raised $568 million in 2016, 73% more than the previous year. By the very nature of the reach of our universities, the benefits are not confined just to our cities. We play a pivotal role to help regional Australians and farmers stake their claim in the startup economy too. The idea of the silicon paddock using technology to take farm businesses to the markets of the world is no longer a concept, it's a reality. Technology enables our regional entrepreneurs to stay in our regions. 
building and running businesses, investing locally, and without the need for long commutes or city relocations. And this too is very important, making sure nobody is left behind. Spreading opportunity fairly is an imperative for Australian universities. I want to share with you the story of Carly Noon. Carly's here with us uh, today. She's a young Gamilaroi woman from near Tamworth. Carly was the first in her family to go to university when she began a combined maths and physics degree at the University of Newcastle about eight years ago. She's been working ever since to identify and understand more about the sophisticated scientific knowledge embedded in indigenous astronomy. Carly has sifted through early European settler accounts of indigenous stories about moon, halo, moon halos. For the first Australians, those rings around the moon were storm predictors. In her area of expertise, published for wider Australia to share, Carly is teaching us more about the history of our own country. And she has an important message for other young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You're a natural scientist, she tells them. Don't ever doubt that. It's in you. It's in your culture. We are so special and we are so unique. Be proud of that. Do whatever you want. What a powerful message of inspiration and cultural pride. Tonight in Parliament House, Universities Australia will launch a new Indigenous strategy. And we'll honour some of the many trailblazers who forged a path into universities for Australia's first peoples. The late Dr Margaret Williams Weir, the very much still alive Lloyd McDermott, the late great Charles Perkins and many others. The goal of this strategy is to drive further gains in university participation by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Crucially, we embark on this commitment in partnership with the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Higher Education Consortium. For it's only through Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians working side by side in genuine partnership that we can make real headway. And progress is sorely needed. Just two weeks ago, our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, delivered the annual Closing the Gap report. As a reflection on how we're tracking in redressing shocking disparities in health, education, employment and life expectancy, it <coughs> makes for sobering reading. On some measures, heartbreakingly, we've gone backwards. One point, however, gave cause for optimism. The higher the level of education, the Prime Minister noted, the smaller the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous employment. Even more encouragingly, for tertiary educated Indigenous people, he remarked, there is no gap. Education is closing the gap. This statistic affirms something that most of us know instinctively. <coughs> education transforms lives. Australian universities now have 74% more Indigenous undergraduate students than we had in 20. Oh, wait. And yet while Indigenous people make up 2.7% of Australia's working age population, they account for only 1.6% of university students. As a matter of both equity and excellence, Australia needs to draw on the talents of all of its people. Tonight, UA's member universities will commit to expand their contributions to practical measures to close the gap in disadvantage to lift the visibility of Indigenous expertise, excellence and contributions to Australia. 
to acknowledge and support the rights, languages and cultures of Indigenous communities, to tackle racism and to promote equal opportunity and outcomes for all Australians. We'll set ourselves clear targets to achieve some very specific goals. The objectives are clear. On participation, we'll maintain an Indigenous student growth rate that is at least 50% above the growth rate of non-Indigenous enrolments, and ideally 100% above. On retention, we'll implement measures to ensure that by 2025, Indigenous students achieve the same success rates by field as domestic non-Indigenous students. And on completion, we'll work to achieve equal student completion rates by field of study by 2028. These are ambitious targets and they may not be easy to achieve. But lack of ambition, lack of commitment on this front is simply not an option. We need the skills and talents of first Australians and we need them as they bring them to our universities. We need to ensure that every Australian, uh, every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person with the ambition and ability to go to university can see a pathway in. Tracing that pathway back 50 years or so, we're reminded of the gravity of the responsibility we have to afford everyone this opportunity. <coughs> I mentioned Charles Perkins earlier. Any attempt I've made to articulate the scale of the challenge we face is eclipsed by the ability he had, not simply to point out inequity, but to make us feel it in our guts. Interviewed for the Australian Biography Project, Perkins recalled his contribution to a campus debate, I think in the mid to late 60s. I quote, We had a big debate on the freedom ride. Should we get in the swim or not? When we broke into the pools of Maury Bars and opened them up for everybody to swim, there was a ban on swimming by blacks in the pool. And so, Perkins continues, the debate topic was, should we get into the swim? That was at the Union, Sydney University Union. So everybody turned up here, yeah, hundreds and hundreds and thousands turned up to the debate. Couldn't get in the place, couldn't get in myself in quiz. Perkins goes on. Well, I took the topic literally. I was arguing in the literal sense, should we get into the swim? Oh, it was ridiculous, but I won the debate. Anyway. Charlie Perkins was a brilliant intellect and a brilliant debater. The answer to the debate topic was a given. It was how he engaged the question that counted. That topic, writ large, was what changed minds, altered viewpoints, built national momentum for change. Perkins crystallised the nature of the injustice Aboriginal Australians faced, not by having all the answers, but by scrutinising the questions. He decried the absurdity of the circumstance, the assumptions, the structure that supported prejudice in this country. Facts or evidence are essential parts of this approach. But I put it to you that they aren't always the headline element. It's how we approach the question that counts. The right answers will come as a matter of consequence, not force. This is one of my last major speeches before I step down as Chair of Universities Australia in May. So allow me to take a moment to outline some of the policy questions we've faced and continue to confront. Over the past few years, UA has clearly explained the benefits for Australia of a well-resourced, stable and quality-focused university sector. Our Keep It Clever campaign now has almost 45,000 Facebook supporters 
and nearly 30,000 people have signed our petition seeking secure funding for university education and research. The campaign has helped more Australians to join the dots about the many inventions, innovations and services they depend on that were created or enabled by Australian universities. IVF, developed by an Australian university. The cervical cancer vaccine Gardasil, developed by an Australian university. An improved bowel cancer early detection test, the world's largest parenting support program, spray-on solar panels, all developed by Australian universities. The list is extensive. It's nothing short of inspiring. Notwithstanding the policy and funding uncertainty in which we have operated, our universities remain Australia's third largest export. Educating international students now brings a staggering $21.8 billion into Australia each year. So we have an extra financial incentive beyond providing the very best quality education to our own country's current and next generations. We must ensure that any higher education policy and funding decisions do not damage the enormous benefits the sector affords us as a nation. Across government, industry, our universities and the community, recognition has grown that the strength of our universities is inextricably connected to the strength of our economy. People get it. They understand the link. You can't have one without the other. Let me return to where I began today. Comprehending and overcoming the complex problems the world confronts, in my view, requires we defend the role of expertise and intellectual inquiry. That doesn't mean universities are the last word on knowledge. To a large extent, it means rethinking the way knowledge is conveyed beyond university gates. If universities don't turn their minds to this issue, others will, and their motivations may not always be altruistic. Contemplating this problem, Czech author Milan Kundera wrote of the purge of hundreds of university academics by the Soviet-installed regime after the 1968 Prague Spring. This act, he posed, was part of a state-sponsored drive of forgetting, one by which party-sanctioned truths replaced all others. The totalitarian world was, in Kundera's view, a world based on answers, on absolutes. The party was put forward as the solution to both real and imagined problems. Confronting this absurdity, he observed, the stupidity of people comes from having an answer for everything. In contrast, Kundera concluded, the wisdom of the novel comes from having a question for everyone. This is the very same wisdom Perkins championed. And current circumstances globally have me thoroughly convinced that this approach has never been more necessary. The voice universities contribute to public debate must resonate with that questioning imperative. The approach I'm talking about must inhabit the core business of universities. Take research, for instance. When the facts of a particular field of inquiry are under attack, the natural reaction among researchers might be to tighten up their retort and hone the theoretical armoury. It's right to be rigorous and methodical in research. But in the broader communication of our research, in the public dialogue beyond the lab, I think universities have to guard against retreating to overly te technical language that perhaps inadvertently sidelines all but a limited group of specialists. I don't suggest that research can't benefit or even be improved 
via a researcher's consciousness of a particular, often very specific audience. Yet researchers who allow this consciousness to dominate the development of their work risk undermining their ability to tread new ground and to challenge existing frontiers of knowledge. It's only by crossing borders that we come to something new. How many researchers' discoveries have arisen from a subversion of discipline, practice or establishment? Virtually all, I'd suggest. Crossing borders also means we push other structural boundaries. Within universities, distinct discipline paradigms exist for good reason. They bring focus and in-depth intellectual lineage to a particular field. But increasingly, the complex problems we set out to solve don't abide by the same boundaries. These questions demand expertise from many disciplines, working together and approaching the subject matter from different angles. That's why universities are constantly refining their research and teaching programs and increasingly diffusing the borders that kept many of them separate. This is good for universities, it's good for the country, and it's good for our students, many of whom find their way into public service or politics. These graduates bring a greater understanding of all facets of the complex questions they confront throughout their working lives. Interdisciplinarity is, I think, a powerful antidote against ideological intransigence and prejudice. Australian universities, particularly in their research, have a growing track record in this regard. Many of our very best research institutes are characterised by a fusion of disciplines where, for example, sociologists, political scientists, spatial geographers and economists collaborate on a common research objective. The work that emerges from this research is almost always compelling because it's multifaceted. It extends itself beyond its constituent research community. Cross-disciplinarity has also expanded at the teaching level of our universities, particularly over the last few decades. But a constrained funding environment can provoke a reduction in options. We must, however, keep our viewfinder broad, because reductionism doesn't match the expansionist, multi-strand trends emerging in the broader economy. It's a disconnect. As universities, as a society, we must be mindful of how important it is to ask questions, to follow our curiosity, to challenge boundaries, and to never rest with the answers. Which leads me to my final reflection today. A few weeks ago, I attended a ceremony marking Sir David Attenborough's naming as a lifetime patron of the Australian Museum. He gave a talk lasting less than 10 minutes, but of infinite resonance. He addressed the audience with trademark humility, referring to the genus of Tasmanian snail anointed in his honour, he joked about his difficulty in pronouncing his own name. He spoke wide-eyed of how when European scientists first came to Australia, they saw things that blew their mind. <coughs> With this seemingly distracted aside, he deftly illustrated just how critical the museum is in chronicling scientific uniqueness. It was his infectious sense of excitement, his capacity to go off topic, surprise, to dwell not on answers, but to subsume us all in questions that had the room utterly entranced. The museum's trust president, Catherine Livingston, rightly observed Sir David, there is no one else, you have no peer. It's impossible to argue with that statement. Nobody has single-handedly done so much to raise awareness of the natural world <coughs> and influence our interaction with it. 
It must be obvious, obvious to you that this address struck a chord with me. But it was more than the words. It was the unabashed sense of inclusiveness and intellectual curiosity he reminded me of. That's what he'd had. Those traits were with me as a kid in Geelong, for whom university seemed a distant and at times impossible pathway. In a world where those precious traits seem to be in dwindling supply, a world where they are increasingly derided and dismissed, we must hold a light to them whenever they appear. This is the beacon that universities are and should always be. They are places shaped through their capacity to question and ideally overcome the most bedeviling and complex problems. But at their heart, they must be places where everyone who has the desire to follow their curiosity is inspired and encouraged to do so. Thank you. cynicism and uh, the devaluation of the expert. To a certain extent, um, I think universities may have some um, uh, guilt in this regard. Uh, just in my lifetime, um, people uh, who work in universities have been hustled out of the ivory tower <laughs> and encouraged to get into some suit and heels and or heels and um, <laughs> get out of the CBD. Um, as, uh, as wise lay people and as cynical journalists, we, get, uh, we are able to read between the lines more and more when, when we see experts quoted uh, um, um, because we know that universities uh, encourage their, their researchers to um, uh, uh, earn extra income, outside income, and uh, perhaps gain some media um, uh, attention by doing work for um, their interests. So rather than just call, just call for um, uh, some respect for experts, can universities do more than that and actually change some of the parameters that your experts work under? Thanks for the question. I think it's, uh, uh, it's very, very true that uh, universities are encouraging more and more of our <coughs> staff to engage with the industry sector, to engage with business, with the community. I think it's an important role of universities on the one hand uh, to be a place where public intellectuals can uh, uh, engage in debate on important issues. It's also important for universities to connect <coughs> with the end users of our research, uh, with the industries that are employing our graduates, and to work very closely with them as we look at a range of the economic transformational projects that are so important to changing the Australian economy from where it is to where it needs to be. Universities spend a great deal of time ensuring that we do that with the appropriate ethical guidelines and the appropriate oversight to be confident that uh, university researchers and university academics are truly engaging in a, in a fearless way uh, in the research domain whenever they collaborate. Now that's something to say that uh, Everything is perfect and there's always more we can do. There are always challenges. There are always examples of uh, particular researchers or particular circumstances where we fall below uh, the level that we would want. 
uh, and I think we need to react to that, we need to respond to it, we need to do better. But overall, I'm confident that in the Australian context, when we encourage our researchers to reach out <coughs> to industry and business, we do so with the knowledge that they'll bring their expertise uh, to play in discussing opportunities for joint research projects and hopefully projects that will make uh, a profound difference to society. But they do so from a questioning perspective as much as they do from an expertise perspective. I think it's one of the challenges we face as universities to be ever vigilant, but I'm confident we are. But just on that too, when you talk about expertise and alternative facts, or <coughs> maths, sciences, physics, what about social sciences? What about economics, which is a contested field? Should I listen to the neo-Marxist uh, or the neoliberal? Well, you should listen to both, and we should have a debate about it. <laughs> <laughs> Economists are right about 50% of the time. <laughs> I think it's a great challenge in uh, engaging with them. But I go back to the, the comments I made. This is not about uh, one particular paradigm or another, one particular discipline or another, or one particular debate or another. It's about being involved in the debate. To bring the expertise and the intellectual inquiry to the discussion and doing it in a way that is, uh, I think, reflects well on the professionals that we have in this room and across Australia and our universities to do it in a civil and appropriate way, but robustly. So no, I, I think you can pick and choose, but at least let's have a debate. Fairbacks. Uh, Professor Goller, Eric yeah. Bagshaw from The Herald. Thanks very much for your speech. Uh, you mentioned now it's coming towards the end of your term. Have you had any opportunity to, to reflect on some of the great frustrations you might have encountered during that time? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what are some of those that you hope your successor might not have to deal with? <laughs> um, thanks, Eric. <laughs> Congratulations on your award today as well. Uh, look, yes, of course I reflect on uh, some of the challenges of the last couple of years, and I'm sure colleague vice-chancellors in the sector would be reflecting Back beyond that, it's been a, a challenging period for higher education in this country. Um, ironically, we've probably had the most stable funding period in the history of higher education over the last few years. But that's the irony of it. Uh, because what we don't have is the vision for higher ed that we need well into the future. And in particular, obviously, we need a vision that we hope has bipartisan support. Because I think we've spent a lot of time uh, in various forums, and I know this being my third National Press Club address, I think each one of my addresses has touched on a very important part of the contribution that universities make to society, to the economy, and to the health and well-being of our nation. So I think there's a strong body of evidence that uh, needs to be considered by the policymakers. But we understand the reality and the difficulty and the, ch and the challenges that governments of both political persuasions have experienced in, in recent years, and certainly most recently. I am looking forward uh, to uh, the Minister uh, delivering uh, the next package of uh, changes to the sector. I think he's been working on it for some time. Uh, he's been consulting with the sector for some time. I think he's aware of the, uh, the difficulties and the, uh, the challenges of not having that, uh, that more detailed plan into the future. I think at the moment we need to wait and see what he brings forward. Uh, and, but I do think it's important to call on uh, our leadership in Parliament to uh, understand, I hope, and to respond to what I think is a critically important part of the economy, a critically important part of the nation, and how it needs some stability. Not just uh, in the short term, we need it in the longer term. And I've spoken here a couple of times in the past about the challenge of not having that certainty on the planning horizon. Uh, we can touch on aspects of that in other questions, but there are some real challenges when you're 
uncertain of what the, uh, the future funding arrangements might be. So that's an area where I hope we will see some clarity. And this question is from the Australian and the Higher Education Journalist of the Year. Yay! <laughs> yes, Robert. Um, you just kind of admitted that there is a lot of uncertainty about what the future may hold for the um, university sector. But considering that you and UA have been kind of working on this for several years, how much responsibility do you think that you should personally take, and that UA should take, in the fact that there really is no higher education policy going into the future? Well, the policymakers are in Canberra, so let's understand the, the reality of how decisions are made in this country. I don't think there's been any ambiguity from the sector. Uh, certainly the policy statement we released, I think, when uh, Glyn Davis was chair of UA and supported by Sandra Harding, and then, of course, we sharpened that, I think, to some extent with Keep It Clever. We've been prosecuting that agenda now and supplementing it as we've done today with the two very significant statements today. One is the, the startup report, which again demonstrates, I think, the crucial role universities are playing. We've done a lot of work on the data around the contribution we make to GDP more broadly. So I don't think there's uh, a concern here that UA hasn't been actively pursuing uh, change in the sector. But of course, uh, the, you know, you know as well as I do, there are challenges to the government in convincing the Senate to accept the policy positions they're bringing forward. But we will continue to be passionate about it. And Keep It Clever, in my view, is a fairly compelling uh, analysis of the state of the sector and the opportunities to the sector, and I think a very sensible and balanced set of recommendations to government. We've seen some of the work on R&D tax incentive premiums, for example, that I spoke about when I was last here as one area in which the recommendations of a poor government, let's see where, where they go for a premium R&D tax concession rate. And naturally, at the moment, the Minister is working through a process that UA has had a great deal to do with. And on one matter where I think we are in full agreement with the Minister, the work he did last year through the Higher Education Standards Panel on admissions and transparency, and the recommendations fully supported by the government, fully supported by UA. And how do you use facts to stop education, higher education becoming an ideological battleground which pretends to be, even funding Well, we need a voice in the debate and we need a voice in the discussion and opportunities like this where we can continue to prosecute the case. Uh, I think we're very um, clear in the way we bring the evidence together to support the arguments we're putting forward. And I think in the last two or three years, under Belinda's leadership of UA, we've done a great deal to continue to uh, put before government and opposition and crossbenchers what we believe are a compelling set of data about the sector and about where we're heading and the difference we can make. And we'll continue to do that. And we won't accept anything less than uh, a response from government that demonstrates they understand the importance of this sector to national well-being, to the economic transformation of the country and to our well-being. Caps review. Hi, Professor Glover. Um, you mentioned earlier about the startup report that most startup founders come from universities, but startup founders also disrupt industries, le leading people to lo lose their jobs. So, would you say that universities have a duty to reskill people who have lost their jobs due to tech, tech, tech disruption? No, it's a very good question. It's one uh, that uh, Ambassador Bleich picked up on this morning in his speech to uh, Open Air Conference. Uh, I think it is very, very important that uh, universities, and I think if I could quote Ambassador Bleich, but he spoke very much about universities becoming places where we, uh, where people reconnect over their lifetime because of the, the nature of the, cha the changing nature of the workforce that people will be entering. 
over the course of the next decade and beyond. So we have an important role to play to reconnect with graduates and with the community frequently during that, the course of their careers. Because let's face it, careers in the future are going to be very different to the careers of people in this room. They'll take any twists and turns, and we have to acknowledge that. I think the ambassador mentioned that you know, the skills that a graduate might leave university with in the future may only last about 10 years before you need retraining and support. But I also think there's another important conversation for us to have in Australia, and that's about the tertiary education sector broadly. Because this is not simply about what universities can do when it comes to the disruptive effect of technology and the changing nature of the labour market. It's also broadly what needs to happen in uh, the tertiary education sector, including with vocational training and TAFE, which is a crucial part of that sector, the interaction between TAFE and higher ed, and how we can work together, in fact, to provide the skill space necessary for the future. So yes, we have a role to play. The important thing about the report today, I think, is to say, wow, this is actually really interesting rapid growth of this uh, sector. And not only has it delivered, I think, about 800,000 jobs in the last decade, but another 500,000 coming up. So it's job creating as well as disrupting. And of course, we have a critical role to play in that. As a Glover, John Ross from The Australian. Um, you, you were talking earlier about the assault on expertise by populist politics, but there's also an attack on expertise from within as a result of the press to publish and researchers cherry-picking data to get over the line of statistical significance so they can get their work published. And this is referred to as the crisis of confidence in research. It's a problem right around the world where researchers can't replicate each other's studies and sometimes they can't even replicate their own studies. And as a science reporter, I often have a look at a paper and think, well, this is really fun, this is interesting, but is it true? This seems to me to be probably the biggest threat to the credibility of research, not just here, right around the world. And I'm wondering what Australian universities are doing about it. Well, there's a couple of things I think I'll congratulate you uh, I think it's important to, to um, recognise the movement in Australian universities from quantity in relation to publication to quality. I think that's happening across the board. It has been now for some time. I think the uh, Excellence for Research in Australia initiative, ERA, has actually driven some very important uh, behaviours inside institutions as we look very carefully at the quality of the publications that are emerging. So I think there's, a, there's an emerging positive story here about uh, the changing drivers for academics, but there's no doubt that our staff are under a lot of pressure, and that's the nature of the funding environment that, that we're in. I also think that in the, in the long term, uh, we need to be considering a whole range of ways in which uh, our academics can um, see their own uh, working lives change and develop. And I think one of the really interesting conversations we have to have in the future is about uh, the academic workforce in this country and how that will develop. Uh, and, uh, and create new opportunities, I think, for academics to both be within the university sector and in industry and business to come back in and to recognise and reward that, so to take some pressure off the, uh, uh, the publication uh, or pressure regime. You rightly point out, point out that from time to time I think there are questions about uh, the validity of results, the, the ability to replicate results, the, the questions around uh, methodology and so on. I think it's very important that they're exposed, it's very important that we have the process in place to interrogate those concerns, to learn from them. If anything, I think it's really important that we're testing those boundaries, that there are questions there, that people are questioning the data. We're not immune from uh, situations where the results emerging from a particular piece of research are open to question. Of course we're not immune from that. 
it would be a challenge if there wasn't any response to that, if we weren't questioning, if we weren't trying to replicate, if we didn't have vigilance and we didn't have processes within our institutions of integrity so that we address those and deal with them and encourage our staff accordingly. So I think there's a lot on the positive side about the response. And it is an issue, it's an important issue, it's an interesting issue in some particular disciplines at the moment, where a lot of the historic work is being questioned. It's being questioned. That's the important thing. Let's work through that. It'll make a, a much more profound contribution to society because of that. Just before I call the next question, I should note, looking down this roster here, that we have a really strong representation from the Australian the newspaper, which cops a lot of criticism, but it is prepared to invest in journalism in specialist fields, and they should be encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Glover, uh, Julie Hare from The Australian. Um, at the moment, we're in a policy void. There's a potential 20% cut to student, um, student learning funding. Um, there's other cuts on the board um, that are all in forward estimates. Um, in the past, in 2014, Universities of Australia did countenance um, an increase in student fees in order that universities could get more funding, would Universities Australia or University Vice-Chancellors countenance again an increase in student fees under a change in the HEX HELP scheme so that students pay more, the government pays less, or would it rule that out? Thanks Julie, and I join with Chris in uh, congratulating the Australian the higher ed supplement in particular for the work you do and, and continuing to uh, shine a light on the sector. Uh, and uh, thank you for that and for your award. Uh, you're right, we have been in a, a difficult policy position. We addressed that a little bit earlier. The 20% cut is uh, still on the table, and one of the things we'll, we called for in our pre-budget submission to the government was to remove that completely from their consideration. So we've certainly put that before the minister. We'll have to wait and see what happens when the minister uh, makes any statement on changes to the sector. Uh, the Keep It Clever policy document, I think, outlines our position on uh, the demand-driven system and outlines our position very clearly uh, on uh, funding per student. And uh, at the moment, until we see something from the government, I'm not going to speculate about what they might do in relation to the balance between public contribution and student contribution. There's a lot of speculation that they will engage on that issue, and I think the sector would have to respond to that. There are some things, though, that we would want to test against any change of that regard. The integrity of the income contingent loan system is crucial to uh, equity and participation in higher ed in Australia. It has been for nearly 30 years, continues to be crucial to us. The Minister in his statements this morning referred to uh, the current level of health debt and concerns he has in relation to that. Uh, we'd also want to be very uh, confident that uh, those students, one of the principles I outlined in this forum uh, in, uh, in my last uh, occasion here, and that is principles about access and participation and that those students who have the ability uh, and are motivated and the ambition to study in higher education should be able to, uh, whether or not they've got an educationally disadvantaged background. So I think there are some things that we'd want to test any package from the government on and rather than speculate, it, speculate on it, I think we'll leave it until we see something and then we'll make our judgement. I think any package the uh, Minister might deliver also has to move the country forward. We've spent a lot of time in the last two or three years talking about uh, where we see universities placed in, in contributing to economic growth, to GDP, 
and uh, to the health and well-being of the nation, and uh, we would be very concerned if any package detracted from that. Is there a problem, though? Is there, a, is there an issue with that reliance on international students? Does that drive decisions that wouldn't otherwise be I'm not sure that it drives uh, decisions that might uh, otherwise be made by government. I think they recognise that I think we're now 550,000 international students or more, 27% from China, uh, $21.8 billion industry. I think it's recognised that we have a very high quality higher education system in this country. But it's a high quality system because of government uh, investment and public investment, not just in, uh, in our teaching programs, but importantly in our research. And I think we need to maintain the pressure on the government to continue its investment and not be um, distracted by that simply because the sector is very, very successful in attracting international students. I think the government recognises this is an area that further opportunity exists to grow international education in this country, and I believe that uh, we can continue to do that. Uh, but I wouldn't want to see that used as any sort of uh, lever in a discussion around the level of public investment. I think we still languish towards the bottom of the OECD tables on public investment in tertiary education. So I think there's a need for government to recognise that. John Millard. Thank you, Chris. Uh, John Millard, freelance. Professor Glover, government data quoted by the Federal Minister for Education and Training in, in January compared universities which had most students completing degrees in minimum time, typically the, the sandstone universities, uh, favourably compared with students uh, who took longer on average, men uh, mentioning, mentioning Charles Darwin University, for instance, which has a large proportion of part-time students. Possibly U University of Western uh, um, Sydney also has a large proportion of part-time students. And here I declare an interest. I completed my tertiary education, including a postgraduate degree part-time while working full-time and doing this in minimum time possible you learn to do without little luxuries like... Uh, eating and sleeping. But uh, your successor as the VC at uh, Charles Darwin, Professor Maddox, derided this arguably elitist view that universities with a larger proportion of part-time students are somehow inferior. Um, but you and Universities Australia has so far as I know been silent on this issue. Would you care to use this national forum to speak against this view, implying that those students who study part-time in their army mater are somehow inferior? <laughs> well, yes, I've used this forum to make it very clear, so I've articulated it well, and my colleague uh, Simon Maddox is here as well, and Simon may jump up at any moment. Uh, I think we have a very interesting uh, uh, study underway by the Higher Education Standards Panel at the moment, yeah. uh, which deals with uh, completions, uh, attrition, retention in the sector. Uh, I think from the data I've seen, Australia does remarkably well. I know we see terms, I think uh, we're ahead of the US UK and New Zealand uh, in that regard, and I'm pleased about that. I think if you look at 10-year trends in attrition, you'll find that uh, we haven't changed very much at all over that period of time, very marginally, and yet in the middle of that 10-year period, we introduced the demand-driven system to provide uh, additional opportunities for people to enter higher education. So, uh, no, I believe that our universities, and I think it's actually a great characteristic of our universities, that we have diversity. We have sure. universities that are focused very much on online education and in, in a way that I think is world-class and innovative. And in that regard, they do attract mature-age part-time students. And there are more challenges for mature-age part-time mature part students than they might be for school leavers in an intensive uh, inner-city campus of a university. So we take that into account. And when you start, I think, to uh, 
to allow for those characteristics of the cohorts that are attracted to particular universities, you start to see we do remarkably well and consistently well. Uh, completion rates, for example, have uh, been quoted recently in the press. And I think, again, you know, over a nine-year period, the number of our students who are completing it compares favourably around yes. the world. Indeed. And I think there are very good reasons for those who haven't completed. So I think we need to understand a little bit about what the data is telling us and be reassured about that. And certainly be reassured about the quality of students coming into all of our universities. And importantly, for those who are attracting students, perhaps with an educationally disadvantaged background, yes, what they can do, in fact, to support those students through to completion. Thank Inside you. Canberra. Thank you, Professor. Michael Keating from Inside Canberra. Do you think universities have a duty to help students obtain employment? And do you think universities should do more to ensure that students from rural and regional communities are able to go back home to work? Uh, I think it's a very good question about uh, graduate employability and how we support students uh, to, be, uh, to be able to participate in the labour market as quickly as possible on graduation. Uh, it's certainly been an issue that has concerned the sector in recent years. We saw a dip in uh, 2014. We've seen some return uh, in 2015, which is, uh, I think, encouraging. Uh, but it is actually a reflection on the economy to a large extent. So if uh, graduates are delayed in getting a job, it's often a reflection of the economy at the time. There's still overwhelmingly a premium uh, attached to uh, uh, a graduate in terms of uh, employment outcomes and opportunity, and I think we recognise that. But importantly, your question goes to the heart of what we're doing as institutions, I think, to better prepare our students. Uh, for the career ahead of them. And I think there are some exciting programs that are underway now in universities and that are emerging in universities. And I know my colleague John Dewar from uh, Trove has got a really exciting program on career readiness about to be launched there, which again is an exciting connection of the university with business. And to create those opportunities for work placements, for internships, uh, for scholarship support, a whole raft of ways in which we can help our students to have a work experience before they graduate, and also the career skills we can give them while they're a student to ensure they're better prepared uh, for the workplace. So I think a lot is going on, and it, it, to be honest, I think it's one of those issues that the sector is particularly focused on, not just for Australian domestic students, for all of our students. And to come to your final point, I, absolutely, it's not just about students in metropolitan areas, it's really about what's happening in our regions. One of the good things about the startup report, it touched on this issue that uh, in regional campuses of universities we've got great entrepreneurship and startup development and we need to foster that in regions. Uh, Professor Tim Shaw from Radio 2CC here in Canberra. Thank you so much for your address. And to the thousand delegates here in Canberra, welcome. Uh, the IQ of the city has certainly been risen. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I draw you to uh, Dr. Ken Henry's statements here in Canberra last week? He's appalled at the void in policy debate. He, ref he reflects on the fact that in the old days, the policy debate would be energised through that cut and thrust of federal parliamentary debate. But he laments the fact that they're down in the trenches, they're not developing policy. Can I draw you to La Trobe University, Safe Schools and the Victorian Government? <laughs> and to the extremists and polemicists that you may have referred to, not all in Talkback Radio have the strongest of views on this, but can you articulate from University Australia and your member organisations how you can see better the academics working closely with the public service and with those graduates 
that are now our representatives in, in Parliament because in 1901 only 15% of politicians were graduates from university and yet some great policy was developed then. What do you say now in 2017 to the calibre and the quality of the political policy development? <laughs> secondly, what can, what can the universities of Australia do to improve? Thank you. <laughs> I, I think there's very clearly uh, a view uh, of many of us in the community generally, this is not a new way view, that it is increasingly uh, frustrating to see the challenge of debate in the public domain. I think we're dealing though, and again Ambassador Bleich raised this this morning in his address, of the, the technology dimension, the digital revolution we're going through. Uh, and the disruption that's causing, the way information is flowing so rapidly and so quickly. And we expect a lot of our politicians to engage with that in the immediacy of the moment and not to be able to reflect on uh, what's necessary to make a major public statement. I had the pleasure of, if I gave a quick anecdote about this, of sitting next to Graham Freudenberg, Gough uh, Whitlam's um, speechwriter for many years, and I asked him about uh, those speeches that he ever wrote to, with the most important, and he quoted a speech he wrote for Arthur Caldwell at the time of uh, uh, Prime Minister Menzies making an announcement about Australian troop deployment in Vietnam. So Caldwell, as leader of the opposition, had an important, very important speech to make. And so they began writing it on the Wednesday, and the press waited until Parliament resumed, and uh, Caldwell made that speech to report on it. So there were five or six days of crafting and developing argument, and it's a powerful speech in the context of the time. Uh, no politician has that uh, opportunity anymore, and I think that's regrettable in the sense of the quality of public debate that's going on. I think universities play an important role. I touched on it in what I said about ensuring that our graduates particularly have uh, access to an interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary view. You know, I think it's long gone in the days that our graduates can have a relatively narrow view of the world. They need to be exposed to disciplines broadly because wherever they go, particularly if they go into the federal public service uh, and into uh, positions, uh, if they are fortunate enough, in politics, then we do need to bring those strands together in, in tackling some difficult problems. I also think it's important, and I touched on this again in the speech, about the way we communicate uh, as universities, the way we engage in the public debate and not in an echo chamber. And I think there's a challenge here for us. I, I don't think we have an answer to it, and I think it's going to be an increasingly difficult challenge for universities to break through and influence. I think one of the things the government's doing very positively at the moment is the impact assessment trial. And I know a lot of us in the room are, are looking at case studies from our researchers in the social sciences and social policy context where they are having influence. You can see the connection between their work, their published work, their conference uh, proceedings that they're contributing to, the statements they're making, and influencing policy. I think we need to continue to test that and to draw it out. I'm confident we can. But this is going to be a turbulent time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Please thank Professor Barnett.